You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, the Vine departed Cape Town in quite a hurry. They'd encountered a pirate hunter in the harbor there, and Robert Culliford, John Swan, and all the other pirates, former pirates on board, discovered that life as a former pirate with a king's pardon might not be as easy as they'd hoped. They were all a little bit shaken up by the experience. However, they were still free, and they were still sailing, under Captain Warren. Their next stop was to be St. Helena, a tiny island in the Atlantic about 1,500 miles from Cape Town. Now, St. Helena's claim to fame is Napoleon Bonaparte. He was exiled to St. Helena in 1815 and lived out his final years in a mostly comfortable home. It was a pretty perfect place to exile Napoleon Bonaparte. St. Helena is really far from everything, and it's also really tiny. That does mean, though, that while it's perfect to hold a single very important prisoner, it wouldn't make a good prison colony. You know, when you've got hundreds upon hundreds of debtors and prostitutes, pirates and robbers, and one fabulous con woman, they all need to be hidden away from prying eyes on the other side of the world somewhere, but St. Helena's too small, so you choose an island like Jamaica. When those hundreds turn into thousands of criminals, you need an island like Australia. We'll get there. For now, St. Helena. At... The turn of the 18th century, St. Helena was an extremely important English possession. It really didn't produce anything. They'd tried some colonization efforts when a bunch of colonists built the town of Jamestown, and they tried to plant, you know, sugar, or tobacco, or olives, and a whole bunch of different crops, none of which took, and all of them kind of decimated the soil of that tiny little island. So not only did the colonists fail to grow anything, including food, 
they lost all of their investment. There were people who had thrown all of their life savings into this little venture, thinking they were getting in on the ground floor. And when it turned out they were all broke, they rose up against the colonial government. So eventually, to ease this headache, the crown just sold St. Helena to the East India Company. The company turned it into the most important English port in the South Atlantic. They employed most of those colonists. You know, they weren't going to get rich on their new plantations, but they got work producing wool and wood and water, things like that. Things that sailors who were heading to or from the Cape of Good Hope were going to need. St. Helena provided everything that a ship or a sailor could want. And I do mean everything. St. Helena had women. Naturally, there were working women who provided their services to passing sailors, but there were a ton of young, respectable women as well. Young women that came from mostly good families who had lost all their money trying to grow crops on an island with no soil. Families that would be happy to pawn off one of their daughters on some passing ship's officer. And this wasn't just some occasional occurrence. This was noteworthy. Everybody talks about it. St. Helena was filled with beautiful young women of respectable stock. William Dampier stopped by St. Helena more than once in his career, and he said that the women of the island were, quote, well-shaped, proper, and comely, end quote. I don't know that William Dampier had much interested in those comely women, because, you know, he was married and everything. But these comely, well-shaped, proper young women were also pretty forward. Certainly a lot more forward than you would find in most other English port cities. They'd come down to the Sea Inn, or one of the handful of taverns that dotted the docks, and they'd be just squeezed into these corsets with their bosom, uh, you know, what's a family-friendly way to describe what a corset does? They looked ample. And these English officers, most of them hadn't seen an Englishwoman since, what, maybe Bombay? You know, some other officers would bring their wives with them to India, but before that, London? It had been a while. But all of a sudden, there were all these beautiful young ladies in very flattering attire who were very flattering to these visiting sailors. It's also worth noting that St. Helena gets pretty hot, so their dresses would have been of a much more thin and flowing character. More than a few sea officers would wake up the next morning next to a beautiful young woman, only to be confronted by her father and her brothers and the local priest. The Quick marriages that occurred on St. Helena weren't always blunderbuss marriages, but sometimes they were. However, usually they turned out pretty well for the men who had been roped in. See, these young ladies of respectable families almost always had an uncle or a grandfather or somebody back in England who was an MP or some man of influence that could help this young sailor along in his career. Although, of course, sometimes those young sailors were already married, so the women would find themselves with a nice little cottage in Barbados. Robert Culliford, though, did not need to worry about any of these young ladies of good breeding. 
he was not a respectable sea officer. Therefore, he was not worth any of their time or energy. He arrived on board the Vine on the 2nd of February, 1700, very nearly the same time that Sarah Bradley was making her heartfelt plea in the square of Boston. While her husband was shivering away the days in the old stone jail, but it was summer in St. Helena, perfect for Robert Culliford's flowing Malagasy robes, but he did look like a bit of an odd duck. He decided to purchase a proper English suit. You know, black jacket, a shirt with cuffs, shoes with heels. I can't personally imagine voluntarily choosing to switch from flowing silk robes to a stuffy wool suit in the middle of a St. Helena summer, summers that could get so hot they literally melted the wallpaper glue in Napoleon's house. But Culliford did, because he had a plan. When the vine was ready to depart St. Helena, after taking on food and water and some repairs, Robert Culliford chose to stay on St. Helena. Most of the other men chose to stay with the vine. They were going to take their winnings and their pardons and disappear into the West Indies. Some of these guys would be hanging around Nassau in about, oh, fifteen years. But Robert Culliford and one other pirate chose to stay. Now, that was not John Swan. If there was any truth to their having been in a relationship, even just a platonic matelage, they ended that relationship here in February 1700. The other pirate who chose to stay was named Ralph Patterson. And there are some reports that they were similarly close, you know, spent a lot of time together. But according to all accounts, after the Vine and all the rest of the pirates left St. Helena, these two men enjoyed their time in Jamestown. They had drinks, sang songs, and lived life to the fullest. But then, around the 1st of March, the East India Company frigate Sydney arrived in port. This is episode 288, the Diversions of London. The Sydney looked a lot like the Mocha Frigate, and a lot like the Loyal Merchant, the East India Company they'd run into in Cape Town. All three were East India Company frigates. So it must have been a bit nerve-wracking when the Sydney showed up in the harbor there at Jamestown. The pair of pirates did have pardons from the king and chests full of gold, but they were pirates, and they'd seen just how much those pardons could be worth to an East India captain. Nonetheless, Culliford approached Captain Whitwell of the Sydney, or more likely one of his mates, to ask for passage to London. Now, I really don't understand why Robert Culliford chose to do this. Why did he want to go to London at all? Why didn't he go to Barbados or wherever all of those other pirates were headed? He could take his chest full of gold and make for Port Royal or New York or Charleston or anywhere that he wanted to go. He could buy a farm or a bar or whatever he wanted. So why did he choose to stay at St. Helena only to ask an East India Company ship to take him back to London? It seems crazy. And it was, but maybe not all that crazy. 
See, Culliford had been asked to testify in an important trial of a notorious pirate. At this moment in history, that could really only mean Captain William Kidd. Now, William Kidd and Robert Culliford had a history. It goes back to 1688, when Robert Culliford took part in the mutiny against William Kidd on board the Blessed William. Later on, Culliford stole the crew of the adventure galley out from under Captain Kidd, and while both of those were practical moves for Robert Culliford to make, he got ships and men and guns and all of that good stuff because of those two actions, I can't help but feel that it seems just a bit personal. William Kidd was not a nice person. He was a real bastard. It's why he lost the Blessed William back in 1688, why he killed one of his own crewmen, and I can't help but think that Robert Culliford was taking this huge risk just so he could testify against Captain Kidd, because he wanted to. He thought it might be fun. But there was probably a practical side to it all as well. Remember, the Whigs in London including the High Lord of the Admiralty and John Churchill and the Governor of America and a bunch of other rich, important men, well, they really wanted to see Captain Kidd prosecuted and hanged publicly. It was important to them. And Robert Culliford was going to be a star character witness in their prosecution. Now, he'd promised to be there to testify, but I suspect that staying true to his word was not Culliford's motivation. I think he probably expected some kind of reward for his good service. You know, a big house, a cushy job, maybe some minor noble's daughter. That might be stretching it, but Robert Culliford had plenty of time on this voyage to England to let his imagination wander. Robert Culliford and Ralph Patterson's voyage to England started out pretty lovely. Captain Whitwell really rolled out the red carpet for them. Now, I know that might seem suspicious, and it was, but it made sense to Culliford. He was a big deal. He had a big job. I imagine him telling the captain and the other crewmen and the passengers on board about just what a big deal he was. Plus, Robert Culliford was given the run of the ship. He mingled with all the other passengers. He was invited to dine with the officers. They treated him like a favored guest on board. And if... Robert Culliford was a smart man. I'm sure he agreed to play cards with some of the officers and lost with grace. However, Ralph Patterson, after a couple of weeks, began to fall ill. And as the days dragged on, he just seemed to get worse and worse. It became clear that Patterson needed to see a doctor as soon as possible, or he was going to die. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Pat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When they finally arrived in English waters, though, they still had several days before they would arrive at the London docks. See, getting to London proper took forever. You know, you had to make your way through the entirety of the channel, heading east. Then you have to head north and back west around a peninsula, that point here in the North Sea. And you have to continue on west for a while before you finally reach the mouth of the Thames. And once you finally get to the mouth of the River Thames, you find yourself in a situation that I think all of us would be perfectly familiar with. We have all been, at some point in our lives, stuck in traffic, right? You know, when you're on a, say, a long road trip, and you're making good time, but then you look at the clock, and the panic begins to set in. You realize that you're going to hit Knoxville, or Daytona, or Lincoln, right at rush hour. Then, all of a sudden, almost without warning, the traffic just stops. You're moving at a snail's pace, maybe like six feet at a time. You're stuck in St. Paul for hours. But imagine this, imagine it's not just hours, but it's days of waiting. The ships in the Thames were stuck in a traffic jam to get to London that could last for a couple of weeks. And they had on board a very sick passenger. So Captain Whitwell agreed to send Ralph Patterson onto London in one of the ship's boats. They loaded Patterson on board and a man to row him, but then they lowered into the boat two sea chests, one belonging to Patterson and the other to Robert Culliford. Again, I don't understand why Robert Culliford is doing this. And you know, we don't fully understand the relationship between these two pirates, but come on. If it's me, I'm not going to let a chest full of gold and silver out of my sight. I'm especially not going to put it into the hands of a deathly ill pirate. I mean, say he dies. If you're the guy that's rowing Patterson to shore and he just kicks the bucket, you might just, you know, keep rowing. You might just keep those two chests for yourself. And if Patterson does survive, well, he does have something of a history of stealing gold and silver. And I know I tried to hammer home the idea that there actually was honor among thieves among the pirates. And there was, but still, that's a temptation that I'm not sure I could trust with anyone. Maybe a couple of people in my life, and you can bet that neither of them I met while on a voyage to steal and pillage. It seems to me that Robert Culliford was feeling a bit overconfident here. Richard Zacks describes it like this. He writes, quote, Culliford could let his fancy roam. Flaxen hair or brown, carrot-colored or black, tankards or quartz, sherry or rum. He could now marry well, maybe a goldsmith's daughter, maybe 
In his secretest fantasy, he allowed himself the thought of splicing with so-and-so's youngest, the impish one. In the meantime, he would enjoy the diversions of London. Brothels, casinos, taverns, playhouses, bear gardens, and soon the world-famous 600-year-old Bartholomew Fair. End quote. Robert Culliford had a lot to look forward to. The following morning, as the Sydney neared the London docks, Culliford awoke with a smile on his lips and a spring in his step. He got up, he stretched, and he headed out onto the deck to take in the great city of London town. But as soon as he stepped out, everything began to fall apart. There were a dozen men of the East India Company standing around, well-armed and looking stern. They all surrounded Robert Culliford, and Captain Whitwell informed the pirate that he was very much not free to go. He wasn't exactly under arrest, though. It's not even clear that an East India Company officer had that kind of authority in English home waters. But Captain Whitwell could not let him roam about. See, he'd just sent a message to the High Lord of the Admiralty informing him of the situation— the notorious pirate captain he had on board, and the other who was out there in London. Now, I picture Robert Culliford smirking. Oh, the High Lord of the Admiralty? Not a problem. Who do you think wanted me to get this pardon from the king in the first place? The High Lord needs me, you understand. Not to worry, though. You're just doing your due diligence. No hard feelings. I'll, you know, I'll even put in a good word for you. So, where's breakfast? But if that's how Culliford actually felt, that everything was going to be fine, well, he was wrong. Everything was not going to be fine. The High Lord of the Admiralty sent one of his top men out to arrest these two pirates. Marshal Cheek and a few officers under his command marched to the inn where Ralph Patterson was supposed to be staying, the ship with arms. But when Marshal Cheek arrived... Patterson was not there. According to the innkeep, he had indeed arrived the previous day. He took a room and asked for the local doctor, but Patterson wasn't in his room. They waited around for a while, but it was clear that he was not coming back. He just disappeared. Not only Patterson, but his treasure chest full of silver and gold and that belonging to Robert Culliford. Now, all of that treasure was super important. Cheek sent some men back to collect yet more officers to hunt it down. The Admiralty needed that to make a case here. But his job, his priority, was Robert Culliford. I wish I could see Robert Culliford's face as Marshal Cheek climbed aboard the Sydney. I picture him confident, smiling but then slowly coming to realize that Cheek was not there to set him free and take him to dinner at the High Admiral's Manor. He was there to drag Robert Culliford to prison. But I've got a bit of a problem here. See, I really shouldn't be telling you about this part of the story. Everything that's happening right now, Robert Culliford's sudden, drastic change in circumstances, has quite a bit to do with the story of William Kidd. That's a story we've yet to tell. 
So we're going to end it there today. Next time, we're going to turn our eyes back to William Kidd and continue this odyssey in London. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight